It's nice to see you this morning. Um, I'm Simon. Um, I occasionally help out here a little bit in terms of uh, preaching the Word of God. Uh, It's just to help out from time to time. So um, I'm a pastor. Um, I serve as lead pastor of a church called City Light Church in North Adelaide. We meet in North Adelaide. And uh, we uh, have been a church that's existed there for about three years, uh, seeking to make Jesus known. Uh, as we uh, do life and live for Jesus, love like Jesus in that part of the world. Um, we, uh, yeah, we love Jesus. Um, I know you guys do as well. And so that's kind of where our partnership has come from. Uh, we're in the book of Acts this morning. I don't know if you heard that little phrase that, you know, when, the, when this kind of crazy meeting's happening, a bunch of people are there going, um, I don't even know why I'm here. Um, at that crazy meeting. Maybe that's you here today, all right? You're going, I don't even know why I'm here this morning, um, here at Living Word Bible Church. But I totally believe that the Lord has brought you here for a reason uh, and for a purpose. And uh, whether that's to, to hear this message today, whether it's to meet other people, whether it's to just be amongst God's people, uh, the Lord has brought us all here for a purpose and a reason this morning. And I'm going to pray that God would help us understand His Word this morning um, and uh, He would minister to us as He already has been, no doubt. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for all the good things you give us. Lord, thank you so much for your good word. Uh, We pray, Lord, that as we think about your word this morning, uh, this passage of scripture, that, Lord, you would be kind to speak to us by your spirit. And so, Father, we pray that by your spirit and through your word, we pray that this morning we would see Jesus. Father, by your spirit, through your word, we pray that we would hear Jesus. And by your spirit, through your word, we pray that we would love Jesus. And so love one another. Uh, be identified as his in this world, certain of the next. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, raw power. Raw power. Uh, we, I think we've seen evidences of raw power in recent times uh, in our country and, and around the world. So when I think of raw power, I think of uh, the White Island volcano that just recently erupted uh, in New Zealand and caused significant devastation there. Um, I think of hearing about earthquakes, I I think about hearing of tsunamis around the world, and and when I think of raw power um, in that sort of sense, um, for many of us there's an image coming up on the screen, I think, of the recent bushfires here in um, Kangaroo Island, in Adelaide, and in Australia, raw power, just that ravaging, devastating, terrifying power, where the fires, which um, have affected so many of us, just took out everything in their path, um, destroying everything, raw power. When I think of raw power, I think of also the raw power of public opinion, Um, not just with the rise of Twitter and Facebook and the ability to sort of say what you think to people even though you don't know them, but the raw power of public opinion uh, is, I think, growing, and its power can be really devastating, a bit like a bushfire. Um, I, I, I don't know, anyone here a fan of tennis? Anyone play tennis or want to be a tennis player? I don't know. Um, I, I, I love all sport, and so I happen to find myself during the month of you know, Jan watching a bit of the Australian Open. Um, and, you know, um, again, um, the name Margaret Court uh, came up into the headlines. Uh, Margaret Court, I, I wasn't around when she was playing, but you know, many say one of the greatest tennis players the world has ever known. Uh, she's an Australian woman. Uh, one of the, uh, you know, the, probably the best female tennis player in terms of like how many Grand Slam tennis titles she won. I think she's 
uh, won 24 titles, I think, uh, more than anyone else, basically. Everyone's trying to kind of emulate her and, and sort of knock her off, but can't quite get there. And there's a picture of her coming up. There she is on the top left. Uh, Margaret Court, um, not only has she, you know, she well known for her tennis prowess or former tennis prowess, she's also uh, well known for her fact that she's a follower of the Lord Jesus. And as a result of that and her convictions, has a fairly, some fairly, um, well, in our culture today, controversial stances on marriage, um, same-sex marriage, um, on sexuality and things like that, which are quite well known. Um, many people in our country don't like her very much, not because of her tennis playing, but because of her opinions on those things. Um, public opinion, the raw power of public opinion, has really sought in many ways to take down this great in some ways. Um, so at Melbourne Park, where the Australian Open is played, there's Mel Margaret Court Arena. One of the big stadiums is named after her. And for a long time now, there have been moves to remove her name from that stadium because of her opinions on things. Um, so far, it's stood the test of time. But there's a photograph here. This is from this year's Australian Open. Um, what's his name? Um, John McEnroe, that's right, and Martina Navratlova, you know, holding this banner, Yvonne Goolagong Arena, that's what they think, the, the stadium, and Yvonne Goolagong, wonderful tennis player as well, amazing Indigenous person in the country, but that's their, that's their opinion, remove her name, kind of remove her from society. Um, at this year's Australian Open, um, they, there was a, an event ceremony, uh, an award ceremony planned for Margaret Court uh, to award her, to celebrate, I think, a particular victory of hers in 1970 uh, at the Australian Open. Prior to this event taking place, again, all kinds of moves. Let's shut that event down. That should never happen. You know, not in our time, etc., etc., etc. Ultimately, the event took place. The award ceremony took place. Margaret Court was recognised. Um, handed, a, I think, a replica trophy of that particular time, etc. The stadium, people came, but there was silence uh, when the award was handed over. Thankfully, like, I'm really thankful, there was no jeering, there was no booing and things like that, but it was silent. The power of public opinion um, is really raw and full-on. It's that kind of idea, right? The power of public opinion that's on display, I think, for us in Acts chapter 19. I hope you have Acts chapter 19 open in front of you, either in digital form or, you know, the old-fashioned style, an actual Bible. Um, but I hope you've got it open in front of you, because I think the raw power of public opinion is on display in Acts chapter 19. Uh, this incident that took place back in the first century in the city of Ephesus. We can, there's a map on the screen, I think, of Ephesus for us, or the city. Here it goes. Yeah, here we go. So Ephesus, modern-day Turkey, is basically where this incident took place. Uh, and we're following this story, we're picking up the story in the book of Acts. So Acts, if you know or if you don't know, is in the Bible. Um, we have the Old Testament, um, and we have creation, we have fall, and then we see the beginning of God, or God working out redemption, redeeming humanity, and we come into the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels, biographies of the life of Jesus, and then following that, we then tip into this book called Acts, which is where Jesus has died for the sins of the world, risen again to new life, um, shares, uh, teaches his disciples, and then he ascends to the right hand of God, um, rises again to heaven and then he pours out his Holy Spirit on his people and then from that the church just explodes 
And so down here, I can't reach that one, but um, down here kind of thing is Jerusalem. That's where this sort of explosion starts. And the gospel, the good news of Jesus just starts spreading, changing lives all over the place. So it goes from Jerusalem, uh, chapter 1, verse 8 of the book of Acts, um, stay here in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. You go a bit further up into Judea, a bit further up into Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And we've been tracking, or we track the progress of this exploding, beautiful, good news, um, changing lives, men, women, children, um, Jewish people, non-Jewish people. It's just extraordinary. And today we land in Ephesus. That's where we are in Ephesus, Acts chapter 19. And in, in chapter 19, we encounter this mob um, aroused by self-interest, their um, thinly disguised kind of veil, a cloak of religious piety, frightening in its intensity, unpredictable about this, what this mob might do next. Anyone been caught up in a mob that's kind of turned violent? Anyone felt that before? It can get pretty kind of hairy. Um, Ephesus was the home of the temple of Artemis. Here's the picture of the temple of Artemis. Hey, look at that. It's massive. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This doesn't quite capture the scale of it, right? But apparently it was 140 meters long, you know, 50 meters high. It was, you know, people flocked to Ephesus to kind of hang out and see this temple. It was huge. Um, And the riot is kind of around this the impact on this particular temple, the worship of Artemis. Uh, the riot that occurs probably been brewing for months. The inquiry that takes place afterwards probably shows that the seeds of the riot were there from way back, but it needed a spark, and the spark was this. Economic data had come out showing a downturn in manufacturing. Um, you know, Artemis was this massively important god for this city um, and the surrounding area. People made little sort of silver trinkets of Artemis. Silver apparently was in abundance and that became a massive point of trade for this city. But data was showing manufacturing was on a downturn. And Demetrius, the head of the silversmiths union, was not happy. Um, He was pretty skilled, I think, at pushing on the right buttons of people. And so he gets the members together and fans them into this kind of frightening mob. Um, When we were reading it just then, I thought of Demetrius could be like Nick, who designs jewellery and things like that, our silversmith over here. Imagine Nick fanning us into a... I can't imagine that, actually. Um, He's too much of a cool kind of dude to, uh, to do that. But imagine, you know, economic downturn, Nick's not happy, fans you guys into a frenzy and you hit up TTP. I don't know, something like that. Um, He seems skilled though at firing people up. And you'll notice, what's he blaming the downturn in trade and income on? He's blaming this guy named Paul, an apostle. Uh, Verse 26, and Paul's insistence that man-made gods are no gods at all, no life, no worth quickly becomes an appeal for Demetrius to kind of local patriotism. You know, Ephesus is an Artemis city, a bit like some people might say that Australia is a Christian country. The good name of Artemis needs to be defended. And so the mood kind of turns ugly. The mob sweeps down the streets, passing the riot police, if they even existed back then, into the open-air theatre where this rowdy kind of town hall, public square kind of meeting happens. It's frightening, it's loud, it's angry, it's, it's dangerous. They're furious, verse 28, 
And verse 34, they're all shouting in unison for like 20, for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the only person, right, who can kind of calm everyone down and settle the storm down is, a guy, is the city clerk. Finally kind of points and says, hey, look, the Christians haven't been breaking any laws around here. You know, Demetrius and your mob, if you want to test that, the, the courts are open, you can go down there and sort of, you know, sort of test the case. And I think the clerk's almost like, and the way you guys have been behaving as a mob, you might have to go down to the courts as well and sort of sort some things out. That's all going on, right? And then the meeting just kind of fizzles out and, and I don't know, everyone just goes home. You could dine out on this story, right? I was there when the mob happened, you know, for years. Wow, it was great. The story's gritting, it's gripping, it's, it's frightening, it's memorable, it's unpredictable, right? But the question I asked myself time and time again when I was studying this passage of Scripture, the question I kept asking myself is, what is it doing in the Bible? What is it doing in the Bible? Why does Luke... The author of the book of Acts, Luke also wrote the gospel, Luke's gospel. This is like the second part. Why did Luke give so much space to this incident that kind of comes to nothing? Why does he do it? What I want you to do, so you don't go to sleep. I have this effect, right? I think my voice sometimes can make people feel a bit sleepy and docile and you go... So glad I came to church for a snooze. That voice just lulls me. You know, um, what I want you to do for the next two minutes, I'll give you two minutes. Turn to the person next to you and ask the person, if you don't want to answer the question, ask the person, why do you think this incident is in the Bible? Why has Luke included it? Does that make sense? Have a quick think about it together. Turn to the people around you. Why is this incident, this riot in the Bible? Have a think. There's always that moment, right, where everything goes quiet all of a sudden. Like, either it's like we've worked it out, can we get on with it, or, you know, no idea, no. Um, what, what's it doing in the Bible? I think, can I just, you know, as someone who loves the Word of God and loves to teach the Word of God and loves for God's people to know the Word of God really well, I think this is not a bad question to ask almost every passage of Scripture you come across to sort of go, what's it doing here? Um, why has the author included this, you know, sort of in there? So whatever kind of passage of Scripture you're looking at, it's not a bad question to ask as you seek to get to the bottom of what's going on. But in terms of, let's just zoom into Acts 19, this riot. What is this doing in the Bible? Anyone want to yell it out? We're all friends. No one, there's no bad answer. There are some terrible answers, but no bad ones. Um, yeah, helpful thoughts. Well, let's, let's get into it, eh? Like, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll share with you what I think is going on here as well. But, uh, yeah, if you're familiar, you may not be familiar with the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1 through to 18, where, you know, we sit about, obviously, in chapter 19. Riots aren't new, um, if you read the book of Acts. So, riots are happening all the time in the book of Acts. Um, and, uh, you know, Acts 14, Acts 16, Acts 17, Acts 18, there are riots happening um, there is a fair bit of detail about this particular one, and you've got to go, well, hang on, we've seen heaps of riots already, what's the big deal about this one? Why can't we just kind of press on, you know, and get to Rome and then get to the ends of the earth? Um, what do we learn from this unique, one-off kind of riot or incident? Well, I think there are at least two lessons, right? Two reminders uh, that we see on every single page of the book of Acts um, that I think it's good for us 2,000 years down the road to be reminded of, particularly living in this city, in this world, as God's people. And here is the first one. It's coming up on the screen. Um, here we go. 
Yeah, lesson one, God's gospel keeps provoking opposition. I forget your name, brother, up the back. What's your name? Peter. Peter. Yeah, this is, I think this is your point. Um, so you can come and preach. Do you want to come and, you know, no. Um, <laughs> God's gospel keeps provoking opposition. Now, when I say God's gospel, I mean the whole story of what's involved in following Jesus as your king. Um, you see, the gospel of Jesus, if, God, if Jesus is your king um, and you follow him in this world, you can't kind of keep your head, you know, below the parapet for too long. You've got to kind of pop up at some stage eventually. The gospel won't always remain a private thing. Of course, the gospel has to be a personal thing, a personal coming to Jesus, recognizing our sin, trusting ourselves, throwing ourselves on Jesus and his mercy and following him. But the Christian faith is not the kind of thing that can be contained, you know, just to kind of a particular part of our life. The gospel transforms all of our lives, our patterns, our habits, our rhythms. And, you know, you know that, right? If you've come to know Jesus later in life where you got kind of comfortable with a particular way of living and then you go, bam, you crash into Jesus, the things that we kind of got comfortable doing, it, it changes us, transformation, and we experience that. Here in Ephesus, knowing Jesus as your king affected the local economy. Spending habits changed. Long before the days of Facebook and Twitter and all that sort of stuff, here's a group of people that looked different, sounded different, and made a kind of big difference. You know, little silver shrines of the statue of, you know, and statues of the goddess Artemis, made of silver in this town. There was a slump in the sails because something had changed. Whatever the slump in sales was, how big that was, the impact was significant enough for fear of what might happen, and that sparked the riot. But my point this morning is this. If you live for King Jesus, there are some things we simply won't do. For these Christians in Ephesus, it was not buy, not support, not sponsor, not worship, false gods. And the same is true for us today. And our brothers and sisters around the world, fellow Christians who live in kind of particularly religious cultures, know the feeling of this really well. Whether it's living, our brothers and sisters living in a Muslim culture, living in a Hindu culture, a Buddhist culture, or even in, you know, cultures where secularism has taken on a fairly kind of religious fervour, people know this really clearly. For us today, living for King Jesus means there are just certain things we will not do. We won't support the worship of false gods like mammon or sex or power or worship of the self. For those things are not gods at all. Now, please know, I don't know if you noticed all the way through, um, when this event took place in Ephesus, it wasn't like the Christians rallied together and said, right, let's have a campaign against Artemis. Like, let's take her on. Let's take on the temple. That wasn't what happened. They just kind of come into relationship with the living God and found something so much better that it was beginning to change the way they lived. It wasn't like they said, we love, camp everyone loves a campaign, right? You know, a campaign against something. I'm going to be against this. You know, I'm going to pour my energy into it. This wasn't what these guys and girls did. They, they had turned to the living Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus had become their king and it was having an impact on the culture around them. This is, this is a church, right, in the book of Ephesus that didn't exist about three years prior. Paul had come into the town, preached the good news of Jesus. People's lives have been turned upside down. The church is planted and they're beginning to have a massive impact. Here's a church, right, established by the living God who is beginning to transform and change the world. 
this baby church in Ephesus had a massive impact. They, they were rocking the establishment, changing the economy. And the gospel will always do that, right? When it sits in a culture that's not really shaped by the Christian gospel, it'll kind of stand out. And as we seek to live for Jesus in this country, which has kind of more and more is turning its back on a Christian shape, we will kind of stand out more and more. As the gospel keeps surfacing in the public square, as, um, you know, putting its hand up to ask awkward questions or making kind of slightly embarrassing or embarrassing everyone around for making statements about God's opinion on things, you know, man-made gods are no gods at all. That'll stand out. The gospel continues to provoke opposition just like it did back in the first century. I think one of the least surprising things about this incident is to see gospel ministry sparking opposition. It's been the story repeated time and time again throughout the book of Acts. You can see it. I don't know, there's a myth, right, that we as Christians, um, there's a myth that we as Christians, I think particularly in the West, we often cling to despite all the evidence from the pages of Scripture against it. Here's the myth, that you can enjoy the gospel and just fit neatly into the culture around you. That's the myth. Enjoy the gospel, have Jesus as your king, and then just sort of fit neatly into everything around us. That's a myth. You don't have to go looking for trouble, right, to discover that even in our culture, in our country, there's a growing number of people who've been taken to court um, because of their particular stance on things that are from a Christian background. You know, people just simply wearing a crucifix around their neck or praying with a patient at a hospital can end you, end you up, end up having you facing the judge in a court. Yeah. And many parts of the world, right, where, where Christian brothers and sisters are living in religious cultures, that can be really, really, really challenging. Jesus cannot be fitted into an ever-expanding sort of pantheon of gods. You know, as soon as you preach, Jesus Christ is Lord, the question then comes is, well, where does that leave Artemis? Speak of King Jesus, and I immediately set the scene, inevitable showdown between, you know, between Queen Artemis and Jesus. In many countries around the world, our brothers and sisters um, living in, in, in cultures, in countries where there is a strong religious culture, especially but no, by, by no means exclusively Muslim or Hindu, they spot this tension immediately. So countries which have a religious culture where there's a very close intersect between sort of um, church or, or religion and the state, they realise the challenge immediately and they actually then often put in laws making it illegal to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in particular places. Now, when I became a Christian, when I was 21, you know, just about two years ago, no, I'm much older than that. Um, when I became a Christian um, at 21, I, um, I sort of... I'd already planned this, but I went on a, a trip to Nepal um, and, and trekked through the Himalayas um, for about three weeks, fell in love with the country. Um, I'd fallen in love with Jesus, I'd fell in love with Nepal, and then I began to pray for the country of Nepal um, very regularly. I love it. Um, Nepal, um, at the time, the church was tiny, like just about 20 years ago. Now it's like, it's huge, it's expanding, but it's still not very big. But in Nepal, right, it's illegal. It's illegal, really, to be a Christian. It's illegal to make Jesus known in the country of Nepal. It's illegal to seek to suggest or convert someone from um, their particular background 
to following the Lord Jesus Christ. So here, listen to this. This is Article 160 of the Code in Nepal. Quote, No one will be allowed to do anything and behave in any way that could cause a person to lose faith in their traditional religion or convert to a different religion. Proclaiming Christ comes with a maximum prison sentence of five years for a local person and deportation if you're a foreigner. It makes it really different to preach Christ faithfully in that country. Makes it difficult to preach like the Ten Commandments faithfully in that country, right? You shall not make for yourself any gods or idols. Ooh, man-made gods are no gods at all. You can't actually do that. Preach Jesus, preaching Jesus clearly will impact those of other religious backgrounds in those countries. You know, Luke, Luke includes this story in the book of Acts. I think to remind us actually about what we can expect as Christians living in this world, to get our expectations right. You know, don't, be, don't be surprised when opposition comes. That's one of the big, that's one of the big things here. It's what always happen when, happens when the gospel gets out. Opposition is not odd. It's actually normal. When you read the New Testament, right, our brothers and sisters back in the first century, they are suffering. There is opposition to their way of life. There's opposition to their message all the time. Opposition's not odd. It's, it's normal. I came across some work from a, a man named Ben Kwashi. Um, he's a church leader in his home country of Nigeria. Um, in an interview um, that was published, the last question he was asked was this. Here's the question. Ben, you have visited many parts of the West... You know the culture is getting more hostile to things Christian. What would you say to us in the West? And this is his answer. Listen to the word of God. You must carry the gospel with your whole heart to your children, your relatives and friends. We must agonize in prayer and share the gospel. Inevitably, whether you do this or not, suffering will come your way. It is better to suffer for the gospel than to suffer for no gospel. Whatever is happening by way of Christian suffering around the world, do not think you are insulated from it. It's a great answer. Gospel people will always get kicked in the teeth because God's gospel keeps provoking opposition. Which is why the second thing we learn is, I think, really worth remembering. Here's the second thing. God, God's gospel keeps enjoying protection god's gospel keeps enjoying protection let me explain right it's hard to read this um read it's hard to read this incident and not read into it like a, i don't know some kind of fierce spiritual battle being fought out in ephesus even though god isn't mentioned once even though no christian in this riot says a word at all did you spot that as it was read before god is not mentioned and not a word comes out of a christian's mouth of course, the evil one, right, has his own champion in Demetrius, of course. Demetrius has a tendency to exaggerate the Christian threat. So verse 27, he says, There is a danger our trade will lose its good name. There's no evidence of a recession in Ephesus. But Demetrius quickly moves, right, from pure financial self-interest to more spiritual contents. Have a look with me, verse 27. He says, the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty, right? And then he stirs up the mob by verse 29. Have a look at verse 29. 
Soon the whole city was in an uproar. And he's clearly right. He's short on strategy. Can't you, can, you, can you imagine? I can Luke, the writer of this, is kind of chuckling to himself as he writes verse 32. Uh, the assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing. Some were shouting another thing. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. Isn't that great? I think he meant to laugh at that point. Um, yeah, thank you. There you go. It, it, happen, it happens sometimes, right? Yeah, the, the Jews try to get the wor- you know, word in. No doubt they wanted to distance themselves from the Christian mob because, you know, just in case some new legislation comes in that was proposed, but they're simply shouted down. So verse 34, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, like when you read this, right, there's no logical, I don't know, reason, thoughtful expose of the Christian message here at all. No reason to label the Christians, you know, sort of, well, they're outside civilised norms. As one commentator wrote, quote, the only thing heathenism can do against the gospel is shout itself hoarse. Um, and at this point, it's at this point though, right, right, you know, so here's this riot, you know, there's people yelling things out, there's, you know, the, the mob's been saying, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for like two hours, right, and the Christians are kind of probably, you know, even though they're not really around, they're probably feeling, my gosh, what's going to happen next, how are we going to get out of this, what's going to happen to us, what's going to happen to the gospel, what's going to happen to the churches, and lots of stuff. It's at this point, right, if I was writing the story, Certainly, if I was making up this story, I'd wheel in the Christian hero to the platform, right? Wouldn't you do that? You know, I'd solve the problem. I'd win the day with a sharp, powerful, you know, brilliant gospel presentation from our big leader. But I read Acts 19, you've got it open in front of you, just doesn't happen. Paul, right, the great apostle Paul, taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. He wants to step up, but he, but he, but he never makes it there. Have a look at verse 30. Paul, you can imagine him, oh, I want to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, probably not believers, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theatre. I once knew a, a Christian eye surgeon um, who loved the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a, a fantastically skilled eye surgeon. He thought, I want to take the good news of Jesus to Southeast Asia, um, even though I know that it's going to be hard to do that into countries which the gospel's not welcomed into. He went over there, um, you know, uh, to, to you know, part, his primary, one of his primary things was to solve eye conditions and use his skills as a surgeon to overturn and, and bring sight to people. He was really great, like he was an amazing surgeon, he really impacted the country he was serving in and so they wanted to recognise him, the local dignitaries, by giving him an award. And so the day was set, um, the award was to be presented, um, the day's happening and, and all these dignitaries start turning up and some secret police are kind of hanging out in the area um, and one of the officials came up to this eye surgeon and just said, we actually know why you're really here in the country, now is not the time to tell us. Now, that was, it was meant as a friendly warning, right? And you suspect, right, that the officials are saying something to Paul here at the moment, like, now is not the time, Paul, don't, you know, just stay away. And the apostle, right, the great apostle stays mute on the sideline while the battle rages on. My point, God will keep his gospel without his apostle. Actually, without having a, a single player on the field. 
the city clerk, right? He's not even a believer. If anything, he's the opposite to Demetrius. He tends to underestimate Christianity. Uh, Verse 35, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? You know, our temple, our Artemis, I mean, she's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. We don't need to worry about a bunch of shabby Christians kind of not buying some of the statues or whatever. People come to Ephesus to see Artemis. Look at all of our travel brochures. She's everywhere. Isn't hindsight a wonderful thing, right? Who has heard of Artemis today? Apart from here, you know. You you look at the package brochures, right? Um, By all means, you you come to Ephesus, what's left of ancient Ephesus, to follow in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul. And as the dust settles, right, there's only one winner, the gospel, right? The gospel acquitted of all charges. Verse 37, you've brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. Determined, right? The gospel's no threat to the life of the empire. Rome didn't have a quarrel with the gospel. Paul will say with integrity, just a few chapters later in Acts chapter 25, verse 8, quote, I've done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews or against the temple or against Caesar. The gospel passport is stamped for onward progress to the ends of the earth. These are granted. So good. This, it's, all, it's so good. God, God's not mentioned. No Christian says a word, but the gospel just keeps going on. I love it. It was a long, tense, frightening afternoon for all those people who were caught up in this event and a good afternoon's work, I would say. Such a good afternoon's work that the, the, like Luke, the disciple, thought it was worth recording it in detail for the God who even stayed stay, behind the stage, backstage the whole time. As we wrap it up, right, I've been reflecting on this passage um, a little bit, wondering, you know, what does it mean for us? You know, yep, God's gospel will always provoke opposition. We, we've heard that, we know that. God's gospel will always find his protection. He will always secure it so that it keeps going on in order to change lives. I'm thinking about what do we learn from this? What does this mean for you and for me? It just struck me, though, that that Luke is writing this to remind me, he's writing it to remind you that we can have absolute confidence in God. A confidence, if I speak personally, that I can lose all too quickly. But we can have absolute confidence in God. Here's a passage to remind us, right, to to not go on the back foot with the gospel too quickly. Not to go all defensive, not to start apologising. You know, we we can't say, right, that the gospel is um, within every country's laws anymore. We've seen people write laws to stop it. Acts doesn't even promise freedom from harm for gospel believers in every incident but the god who sacrificed to give us the gospel the god who sacrificed to give his one and only son who allows his people to follow in jesus footsteps that god will guard his gospel's purpose and he will guard his gospel people we can have absolute confidence in god There's a, a thought, you know, I, we, are, we are to keep on with the gospel, even though we may well get kicked in the teeth. 
I don't know, I feel like that's not a bad reminder at the beginning of, I mean, it's not really the beginning of 2020 anymore, is it? It's like February already, how'd that happen? But it, at the beginning of this year, as we set about doing gospel work, there's a really good chance we might get kicked in the teeth. But we can have confidence in God. You know, one of the things you, you might read into the Acts chapter 19, this incident, is, you know, what, you know what I can do? I can, I can go out into a day because I can be assured that God is going to protect me and I'm going to be fine and He's going to guard His gospel. You know, that's not really the lesson from Acts 19. We can't just step out and go, God's going to, you know, it's going to be cool today. Or, you know, we can't go out into the day thinking, you know, I'm only going to go out and live for Jesus if the odds look good or if everything's kind of stacked in my favour. That didn't happen in Ephesus. We can go forward, we must go forward with the good news, with complete confidence in God who will protect us and who will also protect his gospel, whether he uses his spokesmen or women or not. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you this morning, stay on the front foot, have confidence in God, even though you might get kicked in the teeth. I might get kicked in the teeth. Because it's better to suffer for the gospel than to suffer for no gospel. Before I pray, let me read just a few, a few lines of a great old hymn, We Have a Gospel to Proclaim. Um, it was written in 1815. I don't think anyone was born around that. No. Um, listen to these words. This is great. We have a gospel to proclaim, good news for people in all the earth. The gospel of a Saviour's name, we sing His glory, tell His worth. Tell of His birth at Bethlehem, not in a royal house or hall, but in a stable, dark and dim, the Word made flesh a light for all. Tell of His death at Calvary, hated by those He came to save. In lonely suffering on the cross, for all He loved, His life He gave. Tell of that glorious Easter morn, empty the tomb, for He was free. He broke the power of death and hell, that we might share His victory. Tell of His reign at God's right hand, by all creation glorified. He sends His Spirit on His church to live for Him, the Lamb who died. Now we rejoice to name him King. Jesus is Lord of all the earth. This gospel message we proclaim, we sing his glory. We tell his worth. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that in the face of raw power of public opinion and challenge and all of that, Father, we see in this incident at Ephesus that your gospel keeps going on. Uh, Father, thanks for the humbling reminder this morning that your gospel was protected, your gospel kept advancing and has even advanced into this city so many years later, despite the fact that you are not mentioned in this word and you, Father, uh, didn't even use the words of your people. Uh, Father, we thank you that you are sovereign, that you are working your purposes out for the good of this world, for the glory of your name. Our Father, we pray that you would help us today by your Spirit to have confidence in you, not confidence in ourselves. Our Father, we pray that we would um, yeah, remember this part of your word and see, Father, that we can have confidence in you despite, come, despite what might come our way, opposition, hatred, suffering. But we're reminded, Father, that the pathway of your Son, the Lord Jesus, was suffering and then glory. And so, Father, we realise that what was good for him ought to be good for us. And so, Father, help us in the midst of suffering, at times when we're not liked, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, 
and to have confidence in you. And Lord, this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.